Educating the Masses, Socialist Realist Art. This is from a book by Boris Grace called Art Power, um, published in 2008. And it's an essay called Educating the Masses, Socialist Realist Art. The reason I, he's been coming up a bit recently from my friend Tom and I also read an interview with Anna from Red Scare Podcast who apparently wanted to study architecture, in particular Stalinist architecture, but no one was interested. Um, she said something like the only Russian architecture people are interested in was constructivism. So... From the beginning of the 1930s until the fall of the Soviet Union, socialist realism was the only officially recognised creative method for all Soviet artists. The pl plurality of competing aesthetic programmes that characterised Soviet art in the 1920s came to an abrupt end when the Central Committee issued a decree on April 23, 1932, disbanding all existing artistic groups and declaring that all Soviet creative workers should be organised according to pro profession in unitary, quote, creative unions of artists, architects and so on. Socialist realism was proclaimed the obligatory method at the First Congress of Writers' Union in 1934 and was subsequently expanded to encompass all the other arts, including the visual arts, without any substantial modification of its initial formulations. According to the standard official definition, socialist realist artwork must be, quote, realistic in form and socialist in content. This apparently simple formulation is actually highly enigmatic. How can a form as such be realistic? And what does, quote, socialist content actually mean? To translate this vague formulation into a concrete artistic practice was not an easy task, and yet the answers to those questions define the fate of in every individual Soviet artist. It determined the artist's right to work and, in some cases, his or her right to live. During the initial Stalinist period of the formation of socialist realism, the numbers of artists as well as artistic devices and styles that were excluded from the socialist realist canon continually expanded. Since the middle of the 1930s, officially acceptable methods were defined in an increasingly narrow way. This politics of narrow interpretation and rigorous exclusion lasted until the death of Stalin in 1952. After the so-called thaw and partial de-Stalinization of the Soviet system, which began at the end of the 50s and continued until the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the interpretation of socialist realism became more inclusive. But the initial politics of exclusion never allowed a truly homogenous or even coherent socialist realist aesthetic to emerge and the subsequent politics of inclusion never led to true openness and artistic pluralism. After the death of Stalin, an unofficial art scene emerged in the Soviet Union, but it was not accepted by the official art institutions.
It was tolerated by the authorities, but works made by these artists were never exhibited or published, showing that socialist realism never became inclusive enough. Soviet socialist realism was intended to be a rigorously defined artistic style, but it was also intended to be a unified method for all Soviet artists. Even those working in different media, including literature, the visual arts, theatre or cinema. Of course, these two intentions were mutually contradictory. If an artistic style cannot be compared with other artistic styles in the same medium, its aesthetic specificity as well as, as, well as its artistic value remains unclear. For Soviet artists, the main point of reference was the bourgeois West. The main concern of the Soviet ideological authorities was that Soviet socialist art not look like the art of the capitalist West, which was understood as a decadent formalist art that rejected the artistic values of the past. In contrast, the Soviets formulated a program that appropriated the artistic heritage of all past epochs. Instead of rejecting the art of the past, artists should use it in service of the new socialist art. The discussion regarding the role of artistic heritage in the context of the new socialist reality that took place at the end of the 1920s and beginning of the 30s was decisive in terms of the future development of socialist realist art. It marked an essential shift from the art of the 20s, which was still dominated by modernist formalist programs, toward the art of socialist realism, which was concerned primarily with the content of an individual artwork. The attitude of avant-garde artists and theoreticians toward artistic heritage was powerfully expressed in a short but important text by Kazmir Malevich, quote, on the museum in 1919. At that time, the new Soviet government feared that the old Russian museums and art collections would be destroyed by civil war and the general collapse of state institutions and the economy. The Communist Party responded by trying to secure and save these collections. In his text, Malevich protested against this pro-museum policy by calling on the state not to intervene on behalf of the art collections because, of their, because their destruction could open the path to true living art. In particular, he wrote, Life knows what it is doing, and if it is striving to destroy it, one must not interfere, since by hindering we are blocking the path to a new conception of life that is born within us. In burning a corpse, we obtain one gram of powder. Accordingly, thousands of graveyards could be accommodated on a single chemist's shelf. We can make a concession to conservatives by offering that they burn all past epochs since they are dead and set up one pharmacy. Later, Malevich gives a concrete example of what he means. Quote, the aim of this pharmacy will be the same, even if people will examine the powder from Rubens and all his art, a mass of ideas will arise in people and will be more often more and will will be often more alive than actual representation and take up less room. Malevich believed that new revolutionary forms should be represented by new revolutionary art or oh, sorry Malevich believed that new revolutionary times should be represented by new revolutionary art forms. 
This opinion was, of course, shared by many other artists on the left front in the 1920s. But their critics argued that true revolution takes place not at the level of artistic forms, but rather on the level of their social use. Being confiscated from the old ruling classes, appropriated by the victorious proletariat and put at the service of the new socialist state, old artistic forms become intrinsically new because they were filled with a new content and used in a completely different context. In this sense, these apparently old forms became even more new than the forms that were created by the avant-garde but used in the same context by bourgeois society. This proto-postmodern criticism of, quote, formalist trends in art was formulated by an influential art critic of that time, Yakov Tugendkold, in the following way, quote, the distinction between proletarian and non-proletarian art happens to be found not in form, but in the idea of use of this form. Locomotives and machines are the same here as in the West. This is our form. The difference between our industrialism and that of the West, however, is the fact that here it is the proletariat that is the master of these locomotives and machines. This is our content." End quote. During the 1930s, this argument was repeated again and again. The artists and theoreticians of the Russian avant-garde were accused of taking a nihilistic approach towards the art of the past, preventing the proletariat and the Communist Party from using their artistic heritage for their own political goals. Accordingly, socialist realism was presented initially as an emergent rescue operation directed against the destruction of cultural tradition. Later, years later, Andrei Zdanov, a member of the Politburo who was at that time responsible for official cultural politics, said in a speech dedicated to the questions of art, quote, Did the Central Committee act conservatively? Was it under the influence of traditionalism or epigonism? and so on, when it defended the classical heritage in painting. This is sheer nonsense. We Bolsheviks do not reject the cultural heritage. On the contrary, we are critically assimilating the cultural heritage of all nations and of all times in order to choose from it all that, all that inspire the working people of Soviet society to great exploits in labour, science and culture. End quote. The discussion of the role of artistic heritage set the framework for the development of the aesthetics of socialist realism because it indicated some formal criteria that a socialist realist artwork should satisfy in order to be both socialist and realist. The introduction of socialist realism initiated a long and painful struggle against formalism in art in the name of a return to classical models of art making. In this way, socialist realist art was increasingly purged of all traces of modernist, quote, distortions of the classical form, so that at the end of this process, it became easily distinguishable from bourgeois Western art. Soviet artists also tried to thematize everything that looked specifically socialist and non-Western, official parades and demonstrations, 
meetings of the Communist Party and its leadership, happy workers building the material basis of the new society. In this sense, the apparent return to a classical mimetic image effectuated by socialist realism was rather misleading. Socialist realism was not supposed to depict life as it was because life was interpreted by socialist realist theory as being constantly in flux and in development, specifically in, quote, revolutionary development, as it was officially formulated. Socialist realism was oriented toward what had not yet come into being, but what it should but what it saw should be created and was destined to become part of the communist future. Socialist realism was understood as a dialectical method. Quote, what is most important to the dialectical method, wrote Stalin, is not that which is stable at the present, but is already beginning to die, but rather that which is emerging and developing. Even at present, it does not appear stable, since for the dialectical method, only that which is emerging and developing cannot be overcome. Of course, it was the Communist Party that had the right to decide what would die and what would emerge. The mere depiction of the facts was efficient, officially condemned as, quote, naturalism, which should be distinguished from, quote, realism taken to imply an ability to grasp the whole of historical development, to recognise in the present world the signs of the coming communist world. The ability to make the correct socialist selection of current and historical facts was regarded as the most important quality of a socialist artist. Boris Iogansen, one, one of the leading official artists of the Stalin period, said in his speech to the first convention of Soviet artists in the 1930s, quote, a fact is not a whole truth. It is merely the raw material from which the real truth of art must be smelted and extracted. The chicken must not be roasted with its feathers, end quote. And he argued further that the locus of creativity in the art of socialist realism is not the technique of painting, but the, quote, staging of the picture, which is to say that the painter's work does not essentially differ from the photographer's. A socialist realist painting is a kind of virtual photography, meant to be realistic, but to encompass more than a mere reflection of a scene that actually happened. The goal was to give to the image of the future world. The goal was to give to the image of the future world where all the facts would be the facts of socialist life, a kind of photographic quality which would make this image visually credible. After all, socialist realism had to be realist only in form and not in content. The apparent return to the classical was misleading as well. Socialist realist art was not created for museums, galleries, private collectors or connoisseurs. The introduction of socialist realism coincided with the abolishment of the free market, including the art market. The socialist state became the only remaining consumer of art. And the socialist state was interested only in one kind of art, socially useful art that appealed to the masses, that educated them, inspired them, directed them. 
Consequently, socialist realist art was made ultimately for mass reproduction, distribution and consumption, and not for concentrated individual contemplation. This explains why paintings or sculptures that look too good or too perfect on the traditional criteria of quality were also regarded by the Soviet art critic as formalist. Socialist realist artwork had to refer aesthetic to some aesthetically to some acceptable kind of heritage, but at the same time, it had to do so in a way that opened this heritage to a mass audience without creating too great a distance between an artwork and its public. Of course, many traditional artists who felt pushed aside by the Russian avant-garde of the 1920s undoubtedly exploited the change in political ideology to achieve recognition for their work. Many Soviet artists still painted landscapes, portraits and genre scenes in the tradition of the 19th century. But the paintings of such leading socialist realist artists as Alexander Dynenka, Dynenka Alexander Gerasimov or even Isaac Brodsky referred primarily to the aesthetics of posters, colour photography or the cinema. In fact, the successful pictures made by these artists could be seen throughout the country, reproduced on countless posters and in endless numbers of books. They were popular, quote, hits, and it would be wide of the mark to criticise a pop song for having lyrics that were not great poetry. A capability for mass distribution became the leading aesthetic quality in Stalinist Russia. Even if painting and sculpture dominated the system of visual arts, both were produced and reproduced on a mass scale comparable only to photographic and cinematic production in the West. Thousands and thousands of Soviet artists repeated the same officially approved socialist realist subjects, figures and compositions, allowing themselves only the slightest variations on these officially established models, variations that remain almost unnoticeable by an uninformed viewer. The Soviet Union therefore became saturated with painted and sculpted images that seemed to be produced by the same artist. Socialist realism emerged at a time when global commercial mass culture achieved its decisive breakthrough and became the determining force that it has remained ever since. Official culture in the Stalin era was a part of this global mass culture and it fed on the expectations it awakened worldwide. And an acute interest in new media that could, e that could be easily reproduced and distributed was widespread in the 1930s. In their various ways, French Surrealism, Belgian Magic Realism, German Neusaklichkeit, Italian Novecento, and all other forms of realism of the time exploited images and techniques derived from the vastly expanding mass media of the day. But in spite of these resemblances, Stalinist culture was structured differently from its counterpart in the West. Whereas the market dominated, even defined Western mass culture, Stalinist culture was non-commercial, even anti-commercial. Its aim was not to please the greater public, but to educate, to inspire, to guide it. Art should be realist in form and socialist in content, in other words.
In practice, this meant that art had to be accessible to the masses on the level of form, although its content and goals were ideological, ideologically determined and aimed at re-educating the masses. In his 1939 essay, Avant-Garde and Kitsch, Clement Greenberg famously attempted to define the difference between avant-garde avant art and mass culture, which he termed kitsch. Mass kitsch, he stated, uses the effects of art, whereas the avant-garde investigates artistic devices. Accordingly, Greenberg placed the socialist realism of the Stalin era, as well as other forms of totalitarian art, on par on a par with the commercial mass culture of the West. Both, he averred, aimed to exert the maximum effect on their audiences rather than engaging critically with artistic practices themselves. For Greenberg, the avant-garde ethos thus entailed a distant and critical attitude toward mass culture. But in fact, the artists of the classical European and Russian avant-garde were very much attracted to the new possibilities offered by the mass production and dissemination of images. The avant-garde actually disapproved of only one aspect of commercial mass culture, its pandering to mass taste. Yet modernist artists also rejected the elitist good taste of the middle classes. Avant-garde artists wished to create a new public, a new type of human being who would share their own taste and see the world through their eyes. They sought to change humankind, not art. The ultimate artistic act would be not the production of new images for an old public to view with old eyes, but the creation of a new public with new eyes. Soviet culture under Stalin inherited the avant-garde belief that humanity, humanity could be changed and thus was driven by the conviction that human beings are malleable. Soviet culture was a culture for masses that had yet to be created. This culture was not required to prove itself economically, to be profitable in other words, because the market had been abolished in the Soviet Union. Hence, the actual tastes of the masses were completely irrelevant to the art practices of socialist realism. More irrelevant even than they were to the avant-garde, since members of the avant-garde in the West, for all their critical disapproval, had to operate within the same economic conditions as mass culture. Soviet culture as a whole may therefore be understood as an attempt to abolish that split between the avant-garde and mass culture that Greenberg diagnosed as a main effect of art operating under the conditions of Western-style capitalism. Accordingly, all other oppositions related to this fundamental opposition between production and reproduction, original and copy, quality and quantity, for instance, lost their relevance in the framework of Soviet culture. The primary interest of socialist realism was not an artwork, but a viewer. Soviet art was produced in the relatively firm conviction that people would come to like it when they had become better people, less decadent and less corrupted by bourgeois values. The viewer was conceived of as an integral part of, socialist, of a socialist realist work of art and at the same time as its final product. Socialist realism was the attempt to create dreamers who would dream socialist dreams. 
to promote the creation of a new humankind and especially of a new public for their art, artists joined forces with those in political power. This was undoubtedly a dangerous game for artists to play, but the rewards appeared at the beginning to be enormous. The artist tried to attain absolute creative freedom by throwing off all moral, economic, institutional, legal and aesthetic constraints that had traditionally limited his or her political and artistic will. But after the death of Stalin, all utopian aspirations and dreams of absolute artistic power became immediately obsolete. The art of official socialist realism became simply a part of the socialist bureaucracy, with all the privileges and restrictions connected to this status. Soviet artistic life after Stalin became a stage on which the struggle against censorship was played out. This drama had many heroes who managed to widen the framework of what was allowed to make, quote, good artworks or truly realistic artworks or even, quote, modernist artworks on the borderline of what was officially possible. These artists and the art critics who supported them became well known and were applauded by the greater public. Of course, this struggle involved a lot of personal risk that in many cases led to very unpleasant consequences for the artists. But still, it is safe to say that within the post-Stalinist art of socialist realism, a new value system had established itself. The art community valued not the artworks that defined the core message and the specific aesthetics of socialist realism, but rather the artworks that were able to widen the borders of censorship to break new ground, to give to other artists more operative space. At the end of this process of expansion, socialist realism lost its borders almost completely and disintegrated together with the Soviet state. In our time, the bulk of socialist realist image production has been re-evaluated and reorganised. The previous criteria under which these artworks were produced have become irrelevant. Neither the struggle for a new society nor the struggle against censorship is a criterion any longer. One can only wait and see what use the contemporary museum system and contemporary art market will make of the heritage of socialist realism, of this huge number of artworks that were initially created outside of and even directed against the modern Western art institutions. So there's just two things. Before I read this article, um, it was quoted to me as Gross was saying something to the effect that the avant-garde, when you compare avant-garde art of the 20s, say constructivism, versus socialist realist art, socialist realist art was in fact more avant-garde in the sense that it had more of an effect on changing, say, the subjects, you know, perception, subjectivity. Um, the other thing is I heard a, read or heard somewhere once that the difference between Le Corbusier and Adolf Loos, for example, was that Le Corbusier designed buildings for a subject who did not yet exist. So he was designing for a person, like a fantasy of what people might be like in the future, whereas Adolf Loos designed for people like himself in the now. And I think that it's a really interesting, you know, dichotomy, I guess. Because the reason why 
is because the world that Le Corbusier was building for never came to exist. 